come up too early because last week Philip got on to me. He was going to play a solo, and I ruined it. Um, we are in a series called The Law or the Ten Commandments, and one of the things that is very unique about the God of the Bible is that before he asks you to do anything, before he demands allegiance, he sets you free. And he says, I already have a relationship with you, and I love you. Now, therefore, go act like you are loved by the God of the universe and the world. And we've been talking about that for the past two weeks. And so in light of that, before each commandment that we're going to discuss, starting now and into the coming weeks, I'm going to read the very first two verses of Exodus 20. And then we'll read the commandment. Okay, and so we're in commandment number one this week. And this is from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me. So it's our practice here to spend some moments in silence before I preach, because what we're asking is that the Holy Spirit would come and illumine his words to our hearts. And so let's do that. Let's spend some moments in silence and then pray. And then we'll talk about this text. Father, we ask that you would come and be present with us. It is so debilitatingly hard to remember that you just simply enjoy being with us and that that's enough. And so each moment of our lives, we slip out of that. We forget it. And it's, it's hard to remember, Lord. And yet, at the same time, it's the easiest thing in the world. Like what we sing, it's that the entry into your presence is to know that we don't have to perform, that we don't have to be enough, that you, you simply love us. And so, Lord, help us to understand that freedom. Help us to understand that the bondage that we are so accustomed to is actually not who we are. And would you do that by uh, the presence of your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word today in Christ's name? Amen. So, um, like we said, the, the Bible is strange because it affirms and denies the existence of other guys at, at the same time. And what we learn when we read the scriptures really carefully, but also when you pay attention to your life, you will notice that you have allegiance to certain things in this creation almost by default. That you are drawn to certain things, to trust in certain things in an ultimate way. And there's a lot of talk over the past two years, especially how we are as human beings, tribal creatures, that we have this instinct or desire to follow a group or follow a person. And that's because that, that we, we were made to be devoted, devoted to something or, or to someone. And that, that can give us meaning or, or purpose in life. Now, when I first moved here, I was warned by another pastor in town uh, to be careful with how you talk about Husker football. And especially in terms of like idolatry to Husker football. And uh, the, very, the very first game I went to, there was a guy that was sitting in front of me. And literally within the second play, 
Uh, the defense, the Husker defense was not doing well. They, they threw a, uh, a pass, and, you know, he, he was just like, he got so upset within the second play that he left for the entire game. He said a bunch of expletives left, apparently his wife or his girlfriend, to just watch the game the whole time by, by, <laughs> by herself. Um, I would say that, that that guy is like an anomaly and not really who I'm talking about right now. I would say that Husker, the fandom for Husker football, um, exemplifies a desire, a passionate desire that most of you have in this room and that you enjoy. And I don't think that that's the heart of what the first commandment is getting at, you know, like our hobbies. Um, Here's what I think this first commandment is getting at. When I was 16, I met a girl over the summer and we didn't live in the same town. Um, And I I just became really, really interested in her. And I I went up to visit her in her hometown and I, I had a blast. Um, I really, really enjoyed spending, spending time with her. Then I had to go back and live my life, but I thought about her a lot over the next year. Um, and I couldn't visit her very, very often. And so during that time, when I was 16 and 17, I became so sort of uh, interested in the future of relationship with her that it, there, there sort of became like an infatuation. And by the time the next summer rolled around, um, it was approaching me being able to go see her again. And I, I began to notice, like, I'm really, really excited to do that, but I'm also afraid to go see her because I'm scared that the relationship might, might end. And that's what happened. Uh, when, I, when I was 17, I went up and she ended whatever relationship that uh, I thought we had. And w- the interesting thing that happened is, like, on the drive back home, I experienced a few things I'd never experienced before. I I lost my appetite. I couldn't sleep when I got back home. Uh, I could barely maintain a conversation. My mother even asked me, she said, you know, Matthew, what's what's wrong? And I was like, I have no clue what's happening. Um, And in, in retrospect, I think what was happening is that my God died. That what I was worshiping Cease to exist, the relationship. And it threw me for such a loop that I couldn't function. Um, didn't really feel like there was much purpose uh, to living. Now, um, what was going on there in the past, though I didn't have a framework or words to describe it, what was this? I was breaking the first commandment. I was serving a God, and that God ceased to exist, and, and then I felt like I didn't have a reason for living. Now, up until that point, if you had asked me during that time if I worshipped other gods, uh, I would have been like, I'm not even a Christian. And so, no, I don't worship other foreign gods. But this, by default in Scripture, uh, means that we are all, as creatures in the world, instinctually devoted to certain things. David Foster Wallace, a non-Christian who is no longer with us, he said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. So if you worship stuff and things, you will always feel like you don't have enough. If you worship sexual allure and beauty, you will always feel ugly. And he said that the compelling reason for believing in some sort of spiritual thing is that it's really the only thing that won't eat you alive. And the moment you sort of see that is the exact moment that the first commandment begins to make sense, that you are by default a worshiper. And it's in that... uh, realization that this commandment 
it is a rule, like it, it is something that we must uh, do and be warned by, but it's also just stating a blatant reality, which is that you can't have two ultimate authorities. That's what your life boils down to in the end. That who, who actually calls the shots in your life at the end of the day? And who has the final say? Um, that's what this commandment's about. We're going to look at that under three points. Identifying the gods in your life, addressing the gods in your life, and then destroying the gods in your life. So point one, identifying the gods in your life. John Calvin once poetically said, as Tim Lockwood told us this morning in prayer, he said, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. That's the human condition. And even when one God dies, another one pops up and we either destroy them or we get busy worshiping them. And an idol is something that promises only that which the true God can deliver. And when we begin to trust it, we begin to show devotion to it. And what that means is that we set up false gods in our lives. But what we have to do is that we have to hijack God's language, his covenantal language, and attribute that language to the false god. And you see that as a pattern in Israel over the course of Israel's history. So, for instance, to bring it down to our level, I thought that relationship with the girl that I met that one summer was going to set me free from a life of not being loved. A life of singleness in high school, which is terrible, you know? High school's hard. Let's just name that. Um, which meant that, if, you know, you think about it. Let's say you're in a relationship right now. You're in high school. Uh, what I was doing is I was trying to attain from her. This is the pressure I was putting on that relationship. I was trying to attain from her what God had already promised, which is love and affection and deliverance from a life of bondage. But for, for high school, that meant, you know, I, I wanted to, to have affection from somebody that was great, you know. And so how do you identify the idols in your own life? The first step is considering what you functionally believe is going to set you free. What you think is actually going to bring liberation to you as, as a person. And I am not talking about what you say you believe. I'm talking about what is it underneath your actions that drives you. That will affect your appetite, that will affect your sleep patterns. What is it? What, and it's a couple of questions to help you get at that in your own life. What is the thing in your life that, that when you experience it, it can immediately make you so, so happy and elated? Another way to get at it is when, what, what is it in your life uh, that makes you want to beat yourself up? You know, the self-talk of self, just self-contempt. Um, what, what is it in your life that you lie a little bit about? to yourself or to others. Uh, anytime you, you um, reshape the reality of things, you blow something up out of proportion, you diminish something, you're probably trying to hide a, a false God. God is interested in why you do certain things. 
That's why it's just as easy to hide from God in the church as it is outside the church. Because religion's a great way to hide from him. The point is not to be stoic or to diminish your desires. But this is the great thing about what God can do to a person. You can begin to work and serve uh, from an instinctual trust of, of God and be motivated um, by his love as opposed to fear. So how is that possible? Um, it's to continually recenter your life around this God and more on this later through remembering that he is the only one who can bring you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, I'll never forget a friend of mine, uh, Brent Harriman. He was giving a talk on idolatry and he said, I am so tempted um, to break the first commandment, he, he, he said, it's one of the most tempting things in the world for me when somebody comes to me in a crisis. Um, it's tempting for me to want to replace God in that moment because they came to me. They came to me when they didn't have anyone else to come to. And I can show up. And you can see you know, how the human heart can take something so good, like being there for people in need and twist it into a false God that drives you away from the real God. Someone comes to you for help. You should be there and help them. But ultimately, what you are to be about as a believer in this God is to move that person towards relying on God and not you. Which means that you must be willing to face their disappointment for a time. And the reason why is because that person was never meant to look to you to deliver them from anything. They're meant to look to God. Now, um, this is why parenting is so hard. Because <laughs> you have to take somebody who was codependent on you since day one. And you have to move them not towards independence, which is what our culture says to do, but you move them towards codependence on God. Not you. How do you do that? It's you yourself being codependent on God as the parent. And being able to weather the disappointment that your children may have in you when you don't show up for them so that they will show up to God. Now, how do you how do you do that um, over the long haul? You have to begin to see that the empowerment of another person in some ways means that you move away from them so that that person can move towards God. This is what suffering does in your life. That suffering, when it comes into your life. It makes you not look to creation to rely on creation for any sort of lasting comfort or pleasure. And makes you look towards God himself. The Christian knows. So, for instance, my friend Brent, you know, he's like, this is why it's so it's so alluring when somebody comes to me in deep crisis because I want to take God's place. Which is the most tempting thing for any human being. And the Christian knows that their heart can take the best thing and just absolutely ruin it. 
So how do you identify the gods in your life? Well, don't primarily look at your actions. Look at the motivation behind those actions. Look at what your heart does with the, especially the good things that God's gifted you with. That's the first step. Notice what your heart and emotions do in the circumstances that you are currently in. Follow the high emotional responses. As uh, many people have said, you know, high emotions are like check engine lights in your car. It's notifying you that there is an internal problem, but we oftentimes blame our circumstances for our emotions. And part of what this commandment teaches us to do is that if you are overly reactive to anything, there's probably a God somewhere that isn't delivering for you. And you need some internal work done on identifying that God, not focus on changing your circumstances. So you may say, okay, I'm willing to do that. I can see that there's a benefit not getting too wrapped up in the thing. So where do I go from here? Point two, addressing the gods in your life. When, once you have labeled was it, what it is that you worship that isn't this God, and it could be multiple things, you can begin to ask questions of those false gods in your life that will help you uh, address them. So for instance, my friend Brent, he began to ask the question, why do I care so much about being there for people? Why is that a important thing for me. Um, why is it important for me to, to show up and do the thing that no one else can do? And then the flip, the, the further question is, uh, you need to pay attention. If you're that type of person, you know, Enneagram twos, helper, you know, that person. Um, pay attention to yourself when people don't ask for your help. What happens internally when people don't need you? You know, uh, Lisa, I don't know if I'm, if I'm pronouncing this, but the movie Encanto, it's all the rage. Um, and it's so good. I highly encourage you to watch Encanto. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but Lisa, Louisa, is the older sister who feels so much obligation and pressure to be strong. And she says this insightful line in her, in her song, Pressure, um, surface pressure. She says, underneath the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. This is what I mean by addressing the idols in your life. Lisa's God was to be helpful, which is a good thing. And she doesn't know who she is if she can't deliver under pressure. She was told by her community and she took what was told to her by her community and she internalized it into a false God. As she's strong, you show up, you bear under pressure and the human heart takes that good thing and just buries you in it. And God comes and says, I have set you free from that out of the house of slavery. What does a gospel community look like that can surround somebody like Lisa? Well, it looks like empowering each other to recenter your life around God, not what you do. That's who you are. You are loved by God before you do anything. What does that look like? Well, it looks like you letting people ask you questions in areas that you don't want them to go. Like, why do you have to win all the time? 
Why don't you ever confront people? Why are you so tight with your money? Why are you so loose with your money? You know, questions like that. What, what are they doing? What is the community doing when they're doing that? And they, they say that in love. They're helping you see and address the idols in a safe way, hopefully in this church, in a safe way where we say, yeah, I got idols too. They may not look like yours, but it's the same thing. It's a breaking of the first commandment. And if you're like, well, I don't see anybody doing that in my community. Well, then you be the first one. You start. That's how it gets going. And you guys know this. When you're honest about yourself, if you expose what's going on in your heart, it helps other people do the same. And what what begins to happen is that that community can be a mirror to you to say that what you're looking for in this false God is not going to deliver. It's not as good as this God. That's what a, a gospel community helps you remember who you are in Christ. You know, Richard Pratt, he went to, uh, he's a theologian in our denomination. He went to Harvard Seminary, which isn't like a bastion of orthodoxy. You know, it's, it's hard uh, to come out of Harvard Seminary still believing in Jesus. And when asked why he went to Harvard, he said, well, I just figured if Christianity was actually true, it could withstand the highest level of academic assault that, it, that was placed on it. And then when asked why he continued to be a Christian, he said, well, I looked at what Harvard was offering me and I looked at what Jesus was offering me and what Jesus was offering was better. It's just better. And so he continues to be a Christian to this day. That's what a community can help you see is that Jesus is better. What you're going after, you've already been given in Christ. And so you can rest. Oftentimes we aren't forced to ask that question in an honest way until something is taken from us. And that's what the school of suffering does, which many of you have been through already. To address what you've been relying on for deliverance and significance that isn't this God. When you suffer, you're forced to ask this this question. And it's it's a good one, but it's a hard one. Can God be good in the midst of all this pain? Can God actually be okay to follow in the midst of all the wreckage of evil? So let's say you've begun to identify the false gods in your life. You've begun to address those gods. What's next? Well, you have to destroy those gods. Uh, What does the commandment say? It says, you shall have no other gods besides me. And if you're anything like me, once you get to this point, you go one of two ways. You say, I'm going to get busy. You know, there's a lot of stuff I've got to work on. But to get to it, um, or you just give up because idolatry is so deep that you're like, what's the point? I can't root it out. And what Exodus will show you, and and Jesus Christ does this all the time too, is that he shows you that there's another way to go about it. There's another way to start from the instinct of being free. And it's the gospel way. How can you be free? Remember, the Israelites had literally been set free from slavery. That's the context of the law. And as many of you may know, that bondage in Egypt is what the New Testament uses as a metaphor for what it means to be saved. And it's a metaphor for your life. 
that there are these Egypt sort of shrines in all of our lives that really call to our hearts, that make us want to turn and go back there all the time. And you have to be in the business of putting those to death and remembering that what Egypt is promising you has already been given to you in this God. In every, here's what I mean, in every other arena, uh, you guys, we struggle for something. Every other arena, you're struggling to earn enough money. You are struggling to be pretty enough. You are struggling for a relationship. You are struggling for respect among your peers or struggling for respect among your bosses, whatever. But you are working hard. We all work hard. And this God comes and says, I have obsessive love for you before you do anything for me. He's obsessed with you. You know what the word uh, steadfast love means? It means that God has undivided devotion for you despite your obedience or lack thereof. This, you know, when I was uh, in love with that girl when I was 16, it really wasn't love. It was infatuation with the idea of what I thought she could give me. And this is the bizarre thing about God, that he lo- his steadfast love is always stable, solid, it's better than life, and does not depend on your response to it. Meaning, it's the only love in the world that doesn't have any strings attached. None. It just is. And it's for you. Whenever you want it. And though it doesn't seem like it, that is the most powerful force in all of the world and in the human heart. It can change the human heart. Not just to choose different things, but to desire to choose different things. That is that potent. Look, I know this is, I'm simplifying it and I'm jumping to Jesus, but this is the the most summarizing way to put it. Jesus said, if the son sets you free, you're what? Yes, you're free. Do you, know, do you know that you have access to that right now? The gospel says, uh, of course you have not kept the law, but now you get to. That's the fun part. That you work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you have been liberated from the tyranny of trying to be enough. You can't do it. It's not possible. And so you begin to learn. um, And this is so it is so liberating. Your life is not about accomplishing goals. It's not about getting somewhere else. Oh, that's a hard one. Um, What's it about? It's about realizing in this exact moment that God is simply happy to be your God. He likes you. He likes to be near you. He wants to give you that rest of being in his presence, to to quiet you by his love, to sing over you. It is the most powerful and soothing and quieting truth in all the world. 
And what is so strange is that you got to beat it into your head and your heart constantly so you can understand it. This is why we come to church every single week, because we forget it. This is why we have to sing it all the time. This is why we have to take the table all the time, because we forget the gospel. I'm not saying anything new to you. It's the same thing every single week. Somehow I can complicate it, you know. But it's the same thing that God loves me because he loves me. Now, here's a few practical ways you can destroy uh, the anti-gospel or the false gods in your life. Um, I don't know of a better way to quiet the false gods in my life other than to pray. That through, through prayer, um, you are immediately recognizing that there's something outside of your physical reality, which that alone goes against the flow of our culture. But you can actually, you can do this. You can actually pray long enough that the real in your head that's constantly going, that say, pay attention to me, you know, Listen to me, these false gods, those voices can actually get quiet. You can pray long enough to kill them. You can also fast. I would encourage all sorts of fasting. You should fast from your phone. You should fast from mirrors, but you should especially on occasion fast from food. Because fasting from food, what it reminds you of is that you are... You're a beggar. At the end of the day, you're a beggar. You need an outside source for strength and sustenance and comfort. And that helps you remember, I'm, I, I'm not God. I can't sustain myself. And three, um, and this may be like contradictory, but uh, you need to do things that you enjoy. To remember that God is a God of delight and to remember that you're not him. One of the ways that we do that is that we we pursue and intentionally do things that bring us so much joy. Stuff that we just like. Um, Let me give you let me give you an example and then we'll close. Last year, by this time, when uh, we were getting ready to do Jordan's funeral service at his, at the graveyard. I had a hard time, um, on his year anniversary. I remember (laughs) in the gym, like doing curls and just crying, um, just thinking about him. And the day that, uh, we were supposed to do the service, I was real worked up and I didn't think I could do it. And I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go play basketball. I'm going to go play basketball at noon. And for, for an hour, I forgot about Jordan and I forgot what I had to do. And I was focusing on dunking on somebody. And it was so fun. Um, and what that allowed me to do was to, to differentiate from the fact that, like, I, I cannot cease feeling this much pain. I can't do it. And, and I, I, I cannot make this go away. And what that allows you to do when you experience the joyful delight of the good things in creation is it allows you to enter the hard stuff and to just to let it be what it is. It empowers you to do the hard thing and just to leave it there. 
When you do things that you enjoy, that helps you know who God is and that you're not him. Breaking this commandment is the most seductive and destructive force in all the world. And it has infected everything, including everyone's heart. And at the end of the day, you will have to reckon with who calls the shots in your life. Everyone has to reckon with that. Is it you or God? Is it your will or his? And through Jesus Christ, who is the only one who always obeyed God's will, even unto his death, we now have the freedom. We get to do this. Repentance is a gift. We get to identify, address, and destroy the idols that can never deliver what, he do, what he's done for us. It's a joy. Sin is fun at first, but then it's sad. Holiness is hard at first, but then there's freedom. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to repent of the false gods that we have been worshiping. And this isn't some like weird... Uh,